This is just not dope. <laughs> and we're ready go to go. Lawrence Beatty, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. Mm, thank you for asking me. Yeah, we have no idea what's about to happen. We're kind of just flying by the seat of our pants here. But another episode with Cy Kelly. Cy, it's been a long time. Buongiorno. Good to have you back in it's the studio. Back, yeah. The mysterious Spanish-speaking, Italian-speaking man. I was just thinking how mysterious the room is now. I know, it's so <laughs> ominous. <laughs> it's Why ominous. is there only fairy lights on one side? It's like, who knows? Uh, but Cy and I, for anyone who doesn't remember, we've been doing a whole series on masculinity. What does it mean to be a man? We're men who are kind of like at the start of our family lives. And we want to learn from people who've kind of walked the path. So, Lawrence, that is literally the way it was pitched to me. Um, you call yourself a jack of all trades, a lab technician, a forensic scientist, a quality engineer, quality manager, plant manager, production manager, executive, business owner, managing director, mixologist. I'd love to kind of get in there. I'll talk about that a bit later. Full, and full-time uh, granda, which I think uh, would be really interesting to get into. But Cy, I kind of just trust you <clears throat> implicitly with these conversations. So out of anyone we could have been speaking to today, why Lawrence? Can I start with one thing I've just remembered? Yeah, of course you can. Tell us about your cat. <laughs> okay. Just remembered the awesome story with your cat. Which cat? When you go walking the dog. Oh, yeah. She came too. <laughs> the, the cat comes walks. for a walk. Oh, so, quite. Oh. I mean, I had when when she was a kitten. Her brother and her both came. Then one of my lovely neighbours poisoned the, the tomcat uh, yes. because he was a pigeon guy. Um, I didn't ever really get even with him, but he's dead now. So okay, well there you no. go. That had nothing to do with me. <laughs> Quick disclaimer. Allegedly. So yes, the cat yes. The, the, the the cat that used to walk with us um, has now. Shuffled off her mortal coil. Oh, cat. right. We had to get her put down about a month ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Glad she was 13 years old. Yeah. She was just nagging. So I'd be in my office and I would just hear this along my roof. And go, what the heck is that? And this cat is doing parkour across the neighborhood. <laughs> it's not walking behind him like a dog. It is doing the fences all right along. And the rooftops and everything. A ninja. It's got its own theme music, I think. Have you ever seen yeah. that meme? It's like, uh, my name is Giorgio Giovanni. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like, a, I'll have to show you afterwards, Oscar. There's a one with a cat where it's like the cat's walking down the street and then just does like this insane backflip yeah, yeah, in yeah, time with the it. music. Have you seen it? I've seen it, yeah. Oh, I've seen man, it online. It's so funny. Also, uh, Matthew, before we continue, can you just move a little bit forward for the wide shot? Oh, yeah, man. Keep Thank me you. right. Keep me right with my sippy cup and my so yes. wide ways. Apologies, I wondered why it's I hadn't seen it in a while. No, it's okay. I mean, it's it, it comes. <laughs> I was going to say it comes to us all, but you know, in, in a different manner. Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, you never know. Hopefully, puts me down. I mean, one of the things, one of the places that I got my life experiences from, or, or one of the things that might have determined part of my life, are two books. Um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley in 1984, both of which lead to euthanasia, sort of, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, really, never know. We're not a, there yet. It's a really interesting combination of books, though. I was um, reading something recently called, I don't know what it was called. <clears throat> yeah, I do. No, I don't. No, I don't. Oh, I do. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Oh, right, yeah. Right? Yeah, um, I've been doing that for a long, long time. <laughs> and he actually, he talks about uh, 1984 and Brave New World, and he says, you know, in the 80s, you know, everyone was thinking we're going to move into this society where it's going to be this totalitarian Orwellian-style place, but actually where we've ended up is this Huxley vision of the world where we're not being oppressed by suffering mm. or mm. Uh, this controlling government. We're being oppressed by too much pleasure, too much dopamine, laziness, happiness all this us. happiness, yeah. and it actually is suffocating us as a well, people. I, Interesting. I, I, I would tend to disagree there because um, you look at how governments generally the world around are starting to take over people's lives in a, in, in a quiet way. But, I mean, mm -hmm. like, like even the laws that they're passing <clears> in the rest of it in the UK and everything, yeah. like... UK, UK politics has just been devaluated so far now. It's disappearing up its own apex. I mean, when, when during COVID, when the Tories were ripping everybody off and lining their own nests, they didn't even make a secret of it. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. you know, it just, but yeah, they, they, uh, no, the two books, everybody sort of mentions those two, two books always in the same breath, slightly different approaches, but the same sort of control. That, that That's what they were getting at. Yeah. Bearing in mind that uh, Brave New World was written in 19. 34 or 6 or something like that. I mean, that was real vision. Mm. Brave, uh, the other one? 84. Orwell, 1984. It was written in 1959, mm. so it had already started 
going that way or, or perhaps mm-hmm. going that way, depending on your you opinion. see the tide coming in kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. But, and also, um, I mean, they, going back further, my favourite ever, well, two favourite films, Badlands, with Sissy uh, um, Spacek and uh, Martin Sheen in it. Mm. Superb film, superb mm. score, but previous to that, Fritz Lang's Metropolis and oh, I'm good Goose Pitman's now yes. thinking about yeah, it you yeah. know I literally just started watching it again the other day really yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's and oh yeah you're not watching the <coughs> colorized version with Giorgio Moroder's score good no. so those two no. books why did they make uh, why did they shape you I, I, I don't know maybe it was a time and place thing I've probably read them at different times and was just thinking I need to re- reread um, the Aldous Huxley one again but uh, I, I don't think I have it anymore but, well I have a roof base that I wouldn't be at all surprised is going to end up in my living room sometime because I have literally I've got to run into thousands of books now really? rather than just hundreds, yeah. Um, so I've been a very keen reader on and off mm-hmm. most of my life. But um, I might still have it somewhere. Yeah, and uh, so you're not a, a Kindle believer? You're not a e-book guy? No, no, no. You read a book, you have feed paper between your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Smell. Yeah. No, I, I, reading a book <clears> on the <throat> screen... I, yeah, but just it will lose something for me. Yeah, I haven't even tried it to yeah. be honest. So okay, you know you don't know until you've tried it. But I don't think I would like it. Sure, I, I was the same. I I, uh, I carried books everywhere. My bags would be mm-hmm. full of books I might read that day. Yeah. Um, but I found when I got the the iPad, I was able to. to buy those books electronically and carry hundreds of books with me mm-hmm. and then highlight things because the one thing I hate about reading a book is if I read something that's really important to me how do I not damage the book but mark the page so I'd have to have this notebook with me with a pen so then reading became oh, this exercise <laughs> such a so now I can actually highlight stuff I can I can copy and paste stuff out of a out of an iPad but well, so you see there's an I easier like way to go about it than that if Tell it's, us, if it's that important Educate us. if it's that important you just remember it <laughs> unfortunately just memorize it unfortunately I don't have that capacity at all What's no it, if, if you're if you're not setting out to impress anybody else you'll remember it you know mm-hmm. it, it, yeah. though there are times and it's very frustrating uh, when you do want to come up with a quote and um, then it's not there. Mm-hmm. You, you, can, you can't remember, oh, yeah, yeah. you know. But it was opposite or could be opposite for the time and anything. Now, somebody said... Oh, somebody <laughs> somewhere yeah, said a thing yeah. about that. You yes, just, exactly. Was yeah. the, no, I never uh, try recording. <laughs> was the, the longest thing or the most amount of information you've had to memorise and spout out? <sighs> you were taking me to a very bad place. <laughs> okay. Very bad place. Sunday school. Yeah? Uh, Apsley Hall... <laughs> Brethren, Sunday school, Donegal Pass. Tin roof? No roof? No, it had a roof. It, <laughs> it had a real roof, but it was just an anathema to me. I hated every minute. Really? The only reason we went there was because my grandfather was very into it, and my mother just sort of bent to his will and sent us all to Sunday school. I did 12 years. People get less for murder. <laughs> you know, I, I did 12, 12 years. years. <laughs> I just... Some of them, very few, were really lovely people, and um, fair number of them now would, of course, be dead. Uh, but not by your hand, of course. N- no, but <laughs> hypocrisy in the grandest scale. Yeah, man. Yeah, uh, I just and it really, really irks me. That's I have two things that I hold against my mother. Mm-hmm. Sent me to that bloody Sunday school, and then, but it shows you how dumb and how how. Acquiescent, I was as a kid. I waited until I was 16 until I said, Right, I'm not going anymore because my older brother had done the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I never mixed off once. I used to go there every bloody Sunday. Anyway, um, that and the other thing I hold against my mother was uh, when I went to school, secondary school, um, in the start of the September term, and it was Dundonald Boys High School, which was a bit on the rough side. Uh, I was the only person for all of first form who wore shorts. Wore shorts. I knew you were going to say that. And, and My mother did the same thing to me. Really? Me and one other guy in the school <laughs> wore shorts. As soon as summer came, yeah. shorts. No, we, I had shorts Everybody all year had round. So it got to be a sporting pursuit. You had in the winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it got to be a sporting pursuit to come up and slap me in the legs to see the purple marks coming up. <laughs> oh, so oh, it tends to toughen me up a bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Brutal. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So the Brethren Hall was Donegal Pass, did you say? Yeah. It's literally just through that wall. Absolutely Street. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, uh, Absolutely Street. Used to run down this far, yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. anymore since the redevelopment and stuff like that. Interest. Um, my grandfather went there, and as I say, there were some lovely people who went there. Oh, there was an old guy 
Uh, you don't mind if I digress because I digress more this than Billy Connolly. More than the whole point of the show is <laughs> there was an old guy there who I'm sure is long gone now. In fact, he was nearly long gone then. Uh, he was called Johnny Chancellor. Right. He had been in the war, First World War. Uh, used to tell us tales of boys being as punishment being uh, uh, tied to wagon wheels, gun carriage wheels, and stuff like that, and just sort of left there for several days. Uh, <coughs> but Amazing bass paratone voice. Mm. When when I hear anybody sing how great thou art, it almost brings a tear to my eye. Right. You know, remember remembering him, you could feel it on the floor under your feet. <laughs> Just amazing. Wow. He had sung in a barbershop quartet when he was a young man, and he was just amazing. Very what good. was it about him that kind of there was a bit of a magnet to him for you? Just the voice, yeah. and it was very charismatic. I mean, when 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 he spoke. As he did sometimes, and usually not at the Sunday school, but later in the evenings when we were dragged to the church part for the evening service, um, he's the only one that I had any time for because when you listen to him, you didn't. The word wasn't that important, but the way he delivered it was bloody marvelous. You know, mm. it was just superb. His voice was just a real, real bass voice, mm. and it was just brilliant. I, I, I can I remember him fondly. He had. No, I was going to say something about his son who may well still be alive. His son, Jake, was a, a real man about town. Uh, double of um, Phil in it and very, very popular. Very dark, very swarthy skinned, like his father. And had the Afro hairstyle and he worked in various boutiques about Belfast and he was he was one of the, the town's rakes in those days. <laughs> so you were born and bred where? Um in the east, um, f- our first home was in Dundonald, which I don't really remember because we moved into the house at Gillenhurt, Lord Brownell Road, Gillenhurt, on the edge of the Brownell Estate. And we moved in there the day after my first birthday. And I was there until I had my own first house. Wow. So it was 23 years. There. Wow. And I, that, that was, I loved that area. I mm. loved growing up there. Met some really good people. I had great times. There's a few bad people as well, of course, as you do everywhere. But uh, I have nothing but fond memories of Gillenhurt and Gillenhurt Primary School and mm-hmm. the people in and around it, you know. Mm-hmm. Then it was like a village. It's much more <coughs> built up now. I actually drove up that way yesterday. And every little bit of spare ground, like in people's gardens, mm-hmm. there are houses and apartments and all the rest of it. It's yeah. really, really heavily developed. Uh, but a lovely place. And the old city limit, Matthew Stop Line, ran along the Lower Brandon Road, so you could not build oh, wow. countryside of it. Yeah. So just fields and farms on the other side of the road. Class. And still the case. I mean, there's like one one deep housing all along the road, but behind, behind that fields, which we used to take great advantage of when we were kids. You know, summer holidays, you disappeared out the door with a tin of beans under your arm, and that wasn't <laughs> it. You weren't, weren't back until. The <laughs> Sounds like me now. <laughs> silly o'clock, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, dad on the scene was dad around mm-hmm. yeah no um, worked every day yeah um, uh, he obviously would want to be my real formative influences as is only right um, he was he served in the navy during the war right through the war uh, uh, for second world war and um, he was active politically he was a socialist at heart and all the rest but there's uh, Alexa calling you. Or no, who is it? Google Sorry. Assistant. <laughs> you cannot turn Sorry, it Mate, this is Orwell. Orwell is coming for you, my guy. <laughs> Richard signs Belfast. <laughs> you have a TV um, shout out. Could somebody see if you can get that? I tried on settings to put that on airplane mode or whatever, but... I, this is a non-Apple device. No, it's a Sony. I will not be able to... <laughs> he touched the screen and everything went away. Like, ah. <laughs> it's a proper phone. It's not one of those bloody Apple Sony phones. is the only one I would go with if it wasn't Apple because they have really good cameras. The, uh, Another shout-out for Sony there. Yeah. And Apple. Um, okay, so... Um, I do apologise. Oh, oh, don't do. worry about it. It's comedy. <laughs> there you go. I'll, I'll turn it off whenever we, I'll, I'll turn it back on. So I'll we'll probably be able to turn it back on again. Just couldn't find where to do. So right. Yeah. Um, so your dad. Yeah. Uh, he was um, an old-fashioned 
trade unionist, his politics would have been a bit on the left side. He was involved in the Northern Ireland Labour Party before it disappeared up its own apex at the beginning of the Troubles. Um, and because of that, he had some great friends um, who were in the party. And, uh, and people like Jay Fitt and Paddy Devlin were acquaintances, if not friends, you know. And th- my brothers had met them both in their, in, in his uh, life uh, as a journalist. He used to regularly, when he was not go and have lunch or whatever with Jerry Fit, you know, and uh, went when Paddy was in his waning years. Uh, Michael would have gone and read to him and stuff like that when his eyes were going, you know. But another digression. So, I mean, it's a big question, but if you try to distill some of the things that your your dad would have passed on to you, what are some of the things that would stand out? Well, strangely enough, I found last night, uh, I was going through some stuff, my son's moving house, and I was looking for boxes for him, and I found some of the stuff that came from my parents' house after my mother had died, and I found the, when my parents died, uh, when my dad died, my sister, myself, and my brother all spoke, and I found the bit that I had spoken, uh, I had, um, uh, gone through at the funeral and basically uh, respect and dignity um, old fashioned values I think but, and, and, and I'm, I'm really big on them and I'm trying to sort of pass stuff like that onto my grandchildren mm-hmm. but um, just to give everybody a chance you know um, to not be put off by other people's opinions just because they're their opinions uh, and respect what people have got to say. You might think they're wrong, you might diametrically oppose them, but they've got the right to their thoughts and the, mm. their beliefs, you know? Yeah. Any sort of habits or disciplines you would have kind of picked up from that? <clears throat> well, he was a smoker, uh, and Michael and I both smoked for <laughs> various years and years. I only stopped about 17 years ago now. But only. Uh, but um, only a whole Roska ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's another one of these. Another, another one of these. You know. uh, uh, sci-fi type <laughs> references, perhaps. Go for it. Mm. No, what you said, and I wanted a Roska. Oh no, sorry, his name is Roscoe. Roscoe. All right, Roscoe. All right, sorry. Fair enough. Um, I was when you were talking about the books there. Um, you were saying you reread them again at different stages of your life. Yeah. Can I ask a question on that then? Because I'm finding it interesting that whenever we go through um, the leveling ups, if I can explain this again, go for it. whenever um, I uh, became, whenever I got married, mm-hmm. I felt something inside of me level up, mm-hmm. uh, something changed where everything below that level, <clears throat> there were things that I worried about no longer mattered. There were things that I had never thought of now mattered, all that kind of stuff. So, that, And you can never reaccess the old you and your old worries. And so what I wanted to ask you question-wise was whenever you were reading your book, did you feel when you came back to it after one of these life events, like getting married, having kids, did the book change any meanings for you or did you find new things or old things had gone? Or With me, when I revisit stuff, it's usually a matter of how the hell did I miss that? Or, yeah. you know, I didn't see that before. Or it's yeah. like even now, music is a huge, huge part of my life. And I just listen to music as often as I can. Even when I'm doing the garden, I, I have a nice wee high-res player that I, I, I treated myself to and I play stuff in that. And, I mean, I, it, what was it? Something I was playing the other day while I was out in the garden. I was reading my driveway. That shows you how often that I, I'm in the garden. No, I was waiting between the bricks in my driveway, which there are a lot of. There are a lot. So, um, and, and I heard... In the background, and the beauty of decent hi-fi and a high-res player and decent headphones, there's a guy going on racy, racy, and I thought, I never heard that before. Didn't wow. know what was on that track. Yeah. I wonder if he recorded that, you know. And uh, you can hear maracas or just various bits. But there are words and phrases that in music that you hear again in a book. It's the same. Yeah. You don't always. Maybe it's because of your level of maturity at the time mm-hmm. or your. If you go into a book with a certain expectations, there might be stuff that you miss. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it doesn't do any harm if it's a really good one to read over again. And like, there's probably, in, in, as I say, in those hundreds or thousands of books that I have, there are some that would be 
not dross, but not worth reading again. Mm. Uh, but then again, maybe if I had written them off as dross before, maybe I should read them again. You mm-hmm. know, but uh, yeah. <laughs> life's too short yeah. in, in many occasions. Certainly too short to read all the books I've got. Reread the books. Yeah. Uh, so you go through <clears throat> parenting. Yes, that's your first pass at bringing kids up. Yeah, and then you become a grandparent. Yeah, and you almost get the second pass. What did you miss on the first reading of Raising Kids that you kind of picked up on the second? Not a whole hell of a lot, I don't think. I, 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 I just tried to and try to be fair. And, I, and certainly with my son, Johnny, I tried to explain things to him. Uh, I always, 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 from he was came on the scene, I always said to Janet, my missus, that... I would never not answer a question, mm. uh, no matter what it was. And I didn't answer one, but I'll come to that in a minute, because it meant that if he asked me something when he was at school or whatever, and he didn't find out, and I didn't actually know, then we, together we would have gone to yeah. an encyclopedia or, a book or some sort of reference yeah. to find it. Cool. And then I knew too. Yeah. But... Um, that was pre-internet, of course. Uh, now it's so much easier to get mm-hmm. it. And then sometimes you question, is that really correct? Is that right? Don't ever trust Wikipedia. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, not implicitly anyway. Yeah. But the only question that he ever asked that I didn't answer. He was about seven or eight at the time. He was knocking about a wee fellow down the street who was older and much more worldly wise than Johnny. Uh, so Johnny just pipes up one day and says, Daddy, why are there flavoured condoms? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought... Some good worldly wisdom right there. I thought... Uh, I just said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably knew enough at that stage to say... To say I'm not pushing well, And there's no, way, there's no way we're going to go and find that one out. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was the only the only time that I can remember that he ever asked me something that I couldn't answer. Yeah, and yeah. it wasn't it couldn't for a different reason. That because, is you know. class. It's interesting. though, I'm glad you brought up um, you know the internet, and Wikipedia and stuff because just as you were talking there, it kind of struck me that here, like pre-internet, uh, that this is a very obvious thing to say, but it just kind of came fresh to me there that parents were like the source of all knowledge mm-hmm. information they and very importantly they were also there to interpret knowledge and that's something that mm. you can't get on the internet you know you throw a kid a smartphone sure they can find out yeah the answer to any question they want but they're they'll not necessarily have someone to interpret it and unpack that data that they're kind of getting in front of them well that's true as well uh, and again um that's just one of the things that, that, that you dealt with at the time. When you used to find things from encyclopedias or dictionaries or whatever, the, the sort of black and white word is it's fairly straightforward and usually doesn't need any further um, explanation, mm-hmm. except when you go to apply it, maybe. Yeah. Taking that bit of a knowledge, then, do what do you that? do with that? I mean, yeah. what, what, what does that mean? How is that, <coughs> how, how is that relevant? You know, but... Um, just basically, like my career, uh, I always just say I've bumped into things all my life, mm-hmm. stumbled into things all my mm-hmm. life. So, I mean, it, I, I would never make up a lie to explain something. Uh, that's why I always said if there was something that he, he wanted to know or something anybody wanted to know mm-hmm. that I didn't know, then I'd go and look it up. I'd, I'd, I'd make sure that I find out. Hmm. So that's my head's full of crap. I mean, I, 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 I'm... A quizzer, I used to be a quizzer uh, regularly in a team in Lisburn, but um, I like trivia. I've got a head full of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the more it relates to music or recorded music, the better, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, it's just... Pop quiz I, 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 I've always been a sponge for garbage, you know, <laughs> for useless information. And I ever called you a polymath? Uh, no. You seem like one. <laughs> well, depends what you mean by it, I suppose. Well, you know, I'm thinking thousand books. You seem to be able to sponge a whole bunch of stuff and your career. You know, some people, they go and work for the civil service for 47 years. You didn't do that. <laughs> no, 
Well, I worked for the 40s. Civil service, I worked for them for three years as a forensic scientist. And that was, that was the only reason I left that. Uh, I mean, forensic science in Belfast in 1997 and 1980 was pretty damn interesting. In mm. fact, the most interesting job I've ever had, definitely. Wow. Uh, but um, money was crap. Mm. So that coincided. We got engaged in 1979. So I wanted to buy my first house when the mortgage rate was 15 and a quarter percent. I know everyone's crying, aren't they? So. Um, Do you remember I, how I, much you bought your first house for? Yeah. Um, it was either 14,750 or 14,950. So and it was a three-story, four-bedroom semi. So 15K. Yeah. And do you remember what your salary would have been around that time when you were in the civil service? Yeah, my salary in the civil service was £3,200 a year when I left. So it was a fifth? 60 odd quid a The week. salary was a fifth of your house? Yeah. Yeah, that checks out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. Because I'm always curious, you know, were houses much cheaper mm. 20, 30, 40, 50 <laughs> years ago? At what point did they start getting really expensive? But that, you know, if someone's making... 30k today and they buy a house mm-hmm. at 150 it's kind of the same as yeah. what you well um houses really got started to get expensive in the second half of the 70s there was definitely a boom of building houses and all around belfast the greater belfast area like bangor lisburn cumber all those places were building new sets of shelly bungalows and new estates and then sort of detached houses and stuff like that like out around bangor uh but in the 60s um my in-laws, when Janet was a kid, her parents moved to a house, um, the old-fashioned sort of 10, 50 square foot standard semi. And I think it was £2,900 or something, mm-hmm. or £2,700 or something in, in 69, 70, yeah. about that yeah. sort of time. Maybe it was a wee bit earlier than that, but that relatively, relative to <coughs> wages, they they just seemed an awful lot cheaper then. Maybe they weren't. Yeah, so you're saying kind of 70s, whenever the hockey, that, stick, that, the hockey stick graph started to kind of go... Yeah. yeah. Interesting. No, I think that's where... It, and what is that, baby boomers starting to need homes or I, war babies? Quite, or? quite possibly. Well, you see, that's when, in those days, that's the, the, the population in Northern Ireland, UK, was on the rise. For the last number of years, it hasn't risen as quickly as it did then. I mean, it was rising really rapidly then. Yeah. Um, but there are, I think there are fewer school kids now than there were. I mean, their school closes down and closing down and stuff like that. And then that again brings me to the, the, the obscenity of us having a dual school system, mm. which costs twice as much money for two, you know, for, for Catholic and Protestant schools. Yeah. Everybody in my book, and I always thought this even when I was at school, Everybody should be educated together because it's it's the first way you're going to find out the other guy hasn't got corns. <laughs> <laughs> Just clip that and send that to integrated education. That's perfect. <laughs> send that to my mum. <laughs> That's so so good. Yeah. So you always played rugby for Ireland. Yeah, and but and, that, you're, and you're not a polymath. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, but that's another thing. That's another thing I bumped into. I would, I would, I would. Uh, I temper that with the fact that it was for the Scouts <laughs> and it was at an international jamboree in Holland and we had to teach some of the other countries how to play rugby. Grand. But yes, I played for Ireland. Good. Because we were the only Irish troop there. <laughs> so well, therefore, by, by, by default, I played international rugby for Ireland what? and we won the entire competition. What brought you over there? Fantastic. Scout camp. It was just, uh, I was one of the... I was one of the guys who was lucky to have gone through uh, the 27th East Belfast Scout Group, who were run by an amazing bunch of guys, and we learned an awful lot, not just about how to, how to put tents up in camp and stuff like that, we learned how to make, make boats, we did aerial runways, zip lines, you name it, we did it, uh, up to and including killing a goat and eating it one time. Goats just because we could. No, this, <coughs> this bugger wasn't because really. Yeah, he was about sixty-five. He had a long beard and all the rest oh, of it. Man. And we, one of the guys, Gray meat, one, of the, one of the guys who turned into, he actually <laughs> became a chef in the Cafe Royale or some of the big spots in London. A guy called Paddy Stitt. Um, we had been chasing the goats for hours around this island on the Duke of Westminster's estate. His his estate manager, Commander Crichton. 
Uh, he had said to us, "What that, happened?" He, I, feel like, he, I feel like we just shifted genres. He's <laughs> like Lord of the Flies on a stroke. <laughs> he, he, had said, he had said to us, as we were marooned for our our, our one night in a fortnight's camp, which was bivy night, you got marooned somewhere really remote, <gasps> and per head you had a pint of water and a pound of flour. So whatever you did, other than that, you had to build your own shelter. You had to fend for yourself. And Commander Creden, Creden had um, said that we could kill one of the goats because the only things on that island were no fresh water, uh, surrounded by Loch Erne. But um, it was the Westminster Dole Estate, which I think is now the Loch Erne Resort, possibly. Um, so, uh, and the Ely Lodge Forest Park is part of it, but it was called Ely Lodge and there was a big house and all the rest. Uh, he had a twin-engined seaplane flew in with potted plants for the summer for the place you know he, he had his, his he had a big grooming gosling i think it was seaplane on top wow and um the uh the 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 pilot had said that we should come down and see him when he was taken off so we went out in canoes and boats and things onto the lake and he deliberately soaked us because <laughs> he took off like 50 <laughs> yards from us and there was gallons of water still falling off the thing <laughs> anyway Back to the island. So health and safety. There's a different. Paddy stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had been chasing these things for hours, and <coughs> one, one of the goats had gone into the water for uh, uh, a drink. Quart. And this guy, Paddy stick, just pulled his knife out and threw it at it. I oh, threw it straight into its throat, but it wasn't dead. So oh, then it went. That's half a dozen of us sort of drowned it as well. Yeah. And then it was gutted and eaten within. Two or three hours. <laughs> Hungry and, <laughs> and, it was, and it was bloody awful. No, it ended up there only five or six of us eating, and that was bravado. It was Left alive. And greasy <laughs> and horrible. So yeah. I, I would never do that again. I don't know. Well, okay. I fish and I shoot, but I don't shoot living things. I only shoot dead things, like clay pigeons and targets. Um, but I do fish and would eat fish and return and it's hey, not going to be dead things you're like and at what point do they become <laughs> dead <laughs> at point of impact okay. or okay. In, inanimate things inanimate inanimate I never miss thing. once that goat lived I swore I would never leave anything just, living again I'm still <laughs> reading from the images of this goat cornered you had it right with Lord of the Flies just yeah, totally Lord yes. of the Flies yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's what it was but I mean that, that was <coughs> character building I think I mean, absolutely we had great fun in those camps you know? great yeah. just picture yeah. my six year old son being sent on the island given a knife goat son yeah. <laughs> you know I'm just uh, well you know there's there's okay well I was probably we had been there in the same place we had been there in 69 uh, and we had a goat cornered and we we're going to chop its head off and we took yeah. a vote on it and everybody gave up and let the goat go 71 Vengeance. Oh, we're not going to make that mistake this right. time because we were older at this stage. Yeah. So I was then one of the patrol leaders who were there second. And uh, we just decided we would do it when Paddy had already injured the bloody thing anyway. So yeah. He threw a knife. That's movie stuff. Like, what kind of knife was that? Like a bowie knife? Normally sheath knife. Just a normally sheath knife. And he managed and to knock it with six inch blade. He just... <laughs> and it freakishly stuck his things through. Carnage. One in a million. What does shooting <laughs> and fishing do for you? Satisfies your strangely relaxes me. You know, uh, I what did you say? <laughs> Satisfies your bloodlust. <laughs> don't <have> neighbors here. <laughs> the bloodlust. I don't have. I don't have any blood. I'm just kidding. But uh, you find it relaxing. I, I just oh. enjoy doing. It. I find it relaxing. I love, love, love the smell of shooting. Yeah. The smell of the cartridge burning. The, the wow. smell. The, the smell from the. I think he just was a collector uh, and didn't bother with the niceties you know can I ask do you have any favourites of your own guns mm. yes as you know well I, I had for several years um, a converted Lee Enfield like the old British service rifle uh, converted to shoot 762 um, 308 uh, uh, bigger cartridge they, they were 303 mm. caliber for those that don't know and they were converted to 7.62 and they were the sniper rifle that was used by the British Army until the mid to late 80s wow mm. I had to trade it in uh, about a year ago oh. because I couldn't afford to keep both but I bought a more modern one which is a CZ 7.50 it sounds like a motorbike but it's yeah, not yeah and it's a uh, basically. Is it your is it check? Is it your pin? Is it what's full, full uh, check? Yeah. 
It's a full-blown sniper rifle, basically. Right. But was was the Lee Enfield? It was an original, though, from yes, way it, back. Yes, it, it was 1940. Yeah. Well, okay, they were taken and rejigged in the late 60s, early 70s. Right. Uh, but it had been an original wartime Yes, type. that's, that's yeah. why I wanted One of the 17 yeah. million made. Yeah. Which, how many are around, though, is the thing, you know? How many oh, there's still quite a few. <clears throat> still quite a few. I right. didn't get a very good trade-in for them when I sold it, so uh, they're not that valuable, not as valuable as I ah, think. Right. If I'd taken it to America, I could have got two grand for it. Oh, flip, yeah. No. Interesting. Yeah. So, back to grandparenting. Si, this is kind of... What was there something about a Facebook post? So this is what yes. we wanted to ask you this question originally, because you put on Facebook, um, I think you'd just become a granddad, possibly, and you just... It was, for the, it was for the second time, and second it, was, time. it was Michael put it, my brother put it on Facebook, because I'd said it to him. Basically, I mean, you go through various stages in your yeah. life, and you're happy with your lot, and then you're thinking, you know, well, you get to my sort of age, you're thinking, I mean, am I in the wind down here, you know, am I going to die soon, whatever. <laughs> but uh, I have no intention of going anywhere, if I can avoid it, but... Uh, you do think that way yeah. sometimes, and you, you get lethargic, content, whatever, and you're happy with your lot, and you can see things going one way or another. Then my first grandchild, Rory, he came along, and it was fine. And then when Daniel came along as well, he's two years younger, almost to the week. Um, then I just thought, you know, this is pretty cool. I mean, it's a, it always was, it always was, but I mean, it just, it, it's even better. And then I thought, here, you'd better not be going anywhere. Mm -hmm. this, this is, and then I said to Michael, I said, the one thing about having grandchildren makes you want to live forever. Mm -hmm. And it certainly does for me, you know, yeah. because the idea of leaving them, just, I can't compute that, you know. Because mm -hmm. I think somebody was sending me, mum or somebody was sending me that, you know, once you've raised your kids to adulthood, it's not like your job is over, but the main rush, the main... Uh, urgency? Urgency is the word. It is kind of done. But then all of a sudden, something starts, maybe again or for the first time being a grandparent, I'm not sure, um, where you realize, oh, now I have another role that I've never done before. It's new. It's like... A metamorphosis. It's a continuous change. I mean, right. it's, a, it's a continuous thing. It's like... like one of the guys, when my father died, I was very close to my father, and I was sitting in work one day, and one of the guys, who I'd known for years, he'd worked in the company as long as I had, I was working for a Japanese multinational at the time, and um, he came down, and I, I was doing something at a desk in a, an office that wasn't mine, sitting doing something, writing a note to leave for one of the engineers. And Ian, whose office was further up, he got down and time, he said, Chum, I was really sorry to hear about your father. Mm. Sorry I didn't make it to the funeral. But he says, you don't know how lucky you are. And I thought, what? Timing. And he said, my father died before I was born. Mm. I never knew him. Mm. And then that just made me think, you know, I was lucky. Mm. So that, the idea that, and then he said something, he says, you know, that don't ever go away and just look over your shoulder and help mm. and as far as I'm concerned um, I'm looking over shoulders and helping while I'm here yeah which mm. hopefully will continue if I fill, if, if I if I fill Johnny's head with enough crap then it's going to come out of him eventually <laughs> as well, you know? absolutely I hear things coming out of me and I'm like oh there he is <clears throat> oh I, um, yes we all turn into our parents yeah. eventually absolutely yeah. definitely even, I even physically now look like my father quite a bit you know <laughs> so you're with your son was there ever a, a like a tangible moment where you felt like you lost him and what I mean by that is that he's no longer under your care he's no longer your own doesn't need you anymore doesn't need you anymore you know the the baby bird has flown the nest as such to a degree yes um yeah you can't help feeling that i think and it's maybe not definable uh certainly i can remember the day that he finished school after his a-levels the day that school was over for him uh it seemed like that since the photograph taken on his first day at primary school mm -hmm. those those 14 years whatever just seemed to have gone in a flash. Mm. Now, they didn't because there was so much happening in between, but it's just you get to that point and you think, where did that time go? Mm. You know, where did that time go? 
it's like while I was working for the Japanese company, uh, I was sitting in my office and we had two factories, one in Don and one in Kennedy Way. And I was sitting in my office in Kennedy Way uh, talking to myself, which I frequently do and still do, always have done. Uh, and I have this, these conversations with my with myself. You should have um, come here earlier. I was in this room talking to myself. Cy si was talking to himself. You could have just been in the corner talking to yourself as well. So I've, I've never been in a room before where I'm talking to myself no, and what? somebody else is talking no, to themselves. I'm not, I'm not so really sure. Strange. I'm not so sure that's an age thing because we all do it. You know, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. just some people don't yeah. admit to doing it. Oh, this camera thing. Where, oh, what's so the thing? <laughs> I'm sitting in my office in Kennedy right one day, and I was thinking. No, this is. I was probably thirty-five at the time. And I must have been doing something right because it's just given me the factory to manage. Mm. So, um, now there are 200 odd people in it. But anyway, that's another story. Um, I was sitting there thinking, and I actually asked myself this. I said, What are you going to do when you grow up? Mm. And then this John Cleese voice came through. That was it, mate. That was your life. You know, and I thought, Oh, <laughs> you know, was it really? I mean, is this it? You know, yeah. and just the, the, the way things go you know and it was yeah. it was just i was thinking you know what am i going to do next mm -hmm. uh, but i didn't know that i was thinking that because the company eventually closed and i took redundancy and moved on but uh i was there for 23 years wow. and i did a couple of stints working in japan and stuff i was traveled widely all around europe with them because we supplied it was a company made seat seat belts and then later airbags and basically I was Mr. Airbags I went to Japan and learned how to do it with the people from here and then brought it in here and, and put it on and you know we made those for three or four years until Mr. Takata in Japan decided that he was going to move airbag production to the Philippines where you could pay people 50p an hour instead of £7.50 an hour you know so yeah were you doing much uh, <coughs> lean manufacturing those years? Yes, but it, I mean, it, people always have to a degree, uh, and, and you, you know your total quality management, lean manufacturing, and all the rest of it. That's just renaming bullshit for a different generation. Mm, yeah. Um, and okay, lean manufacturing. Yes, uh, like w when we supplied um, Honda in Swindon, uh, we supplied stuff on a basically a just-in-time basis which mm -hmm. meant that and very cleverly Honda made money out of their suppliers because they had like Swindon was built on an old airfield there was a factory itself and then outside of that there were other industrial estates built up on the outer edges of the uh, airfield uh, that were run by freight companies for handling stuff because obviously you've got suppliers all around the world You've got a one-hour slot for deliveries mm. into the fact, actual factory, and uh, if you don't make that, then you're in trouble because you can stop the line and you get charged thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds an hour. So you had all these just-in-time warehouses that became an industry in themselves, uh, and your stuff was delivered in there, and then they picked items from it and brought it into the factory for the nice. whole just-in-time thing. It's mm. like a little Amazon, mini Amazon yeah, yeah. system yeah, almost, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it, it got to be nearly as big an industry as the factory itself, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then um, I think Honda got money back from those um, freight companies who did the warehousing. There was like a, I think it was on their land, so they were paying at least rent or some sort mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, so really, literally, from wherever in Europe you were supplying, wherever in the world you were supplying, you had to have stuff. This must be here at half nine on Thursday morning. Yeah, mm -hmm. sort of, and you know, between half nine and half ten. Yeah. So, uh, anything from Japan that really stood out to you? I was just going to ask a question. Really, yeah. yeah. Well, yes, having been if there, you have a better Japan question. Ha having it. been there and seen it and done it, Japanese <coughs> have done the most phenomenal PR job in the rest of the world. They are brilliant at manufacturing, no doubt about it, absolutely no doubt about it, because they plan well. The, before they ever make the thing, the process is set up, the, the logistics are set up, everything is set up, so you can go boom and start production, people train, whatever. Um, but one of the things that struck me in my first week in the factory in Kyushu Island and sort of south of Japan, uh, lovely place, lovely place, fantastic people, amazing people. Um, but... I walked into the factory at like two o'clock on a uh, on a Friday afternoon, and 
total silence on this line that we're making the airbags that we were going to transfer to Belfast. And then I looked, and at the level of the sewing machines on the line, I could see wee tufts of hair on the top of a baseball cap because everybody wore a uniform. And actually do do your physical jerks every morning at two minutes to eight before you start. And there's the, the, the old... Uh, Commandant, and they, 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 the the camp comes on, and and who you and you know everybody does their press up, but two o'clock afternoon on a Friday afternoon, I'm looking around all the machines, and I can't see anybody. Total silence, no machines on it, and then little tufts of hair, and then I go down, and they as they they have a quite often the, the, the workers in the factory will sit on their hunkers we would, we would call it here sit, mm. you know when their legs bent and, and their bums near the floor and they, they're all just sitting down there having conversations and uh, I said to the supervisor what's the crime they'll call me Beatty San or Lawrence San uh, what's happening oh don't tell anybody <laughs> we have made our quota for the week <laughs> Unbelievable. And they stopped when they made the week's quota and yeah. then they had a wee rest. I mean, they've done such a good PR job. Wow. Another thing, we were making airbags for BMW and uh, I'm up with the management at the, the management team meeting every week and we're going through bits and pieces and we pull the drawings out. And on blueprints, on drawings, you have various changes and they're put on the drawings and sent they're, they're approved and ratified by the customer. So they were, these were BMW drawings. And all these drawings modified in pencil so I had to ask him, what's the crack here why aren't these in the change box don't tell customer don't, don't tell customer <laughs> human nature yeah uh, but they do so well yeah uh, brilliant I, now, now just, uh, now, just an experience being there I was going to ask whenever can I ask about Alpac a second <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think you told me a story before I want to check um What's the most interesting things? Alpac was a company. That, that was my own company. Yeah, you know, we formed a company out of the, 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 the remnants of one that I used to work in. That's the business owner, managing director yes. portion yeah. of yes. your life here. Yes, so yeah. this was uh, for, for, eight, for eight years. Uh, we are making wooden crates and boxes and packaging, mm -hmm. and um, some very boring mundane stuff like we used to do um, boxes for turbine blades for Howden Engineering uh, down who, who have now moved away we did uh, stuff for creative companies for train doors and bits and pieces mm. all, the, all the carbon fibre fiberglass type stuff they did stuff for the munitions industry for them and uh, just various bits and pieces but we, we got the occasional personal uh, thing or I'd get a call from somewhere saying, "Can you do a crate for such and such?" I'd mm -hmm. say, "Yeah, okay." Um, motorbikes, vintage cars. We did mm -hmm. uh, all the panels and bodywork, bought crates for costly cars who build racing cars in Hollywood and ship bits all around the world, um, and things like that. The biggest crate we ever designed actually didn't end up making it because the the company changed, but we were asked, could you do this? And it was a 21-ton plastic injection moulding machine. To see if it was taken apart, can you do it in one, one crate? So I had a gun and I talked to a guy. And there was a guy there using Carrick Fergus for structural engineering. So between us, and the, 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 the basis of the thing is making the base that's going to support the weight. So it involved steel, obviously, and steel girders and stuff, and then triple thickness floor and long bolts and all the rest. And we did, we designed it and they bought it off. And then, I mean, this, this single crate was going to cost something like five and a half or six grand. Uh, but then the whole thing changed and they didn't move it then. Uh, that was when Hughes 2 Company were, were going away from the Castlereagh Road. But um, yeah, all sorts of stuff like mm. that. Well, anything, well, what's the nicest thing that you've ever had to, to box well, One of the yeah. things that I thought was really, really good, probably the first ever mini moto many motorbike racing motorbike in the world hmm. because there were only two of these in existence and hmm. it was when um phil reed and um agustini and stuff were riding for mv and um they mv had them made for their children basically so it was a, a full scale MV lookalike racing hmm. machine about that height we'll get a picture of it we'll put it up in there with yeah. uh 
a 50cc yeah. engine in it and um, they were made by the factory and I think Phil Reid and I can't remember who the other guy was there was a guy from here uh, and they both got, got them and they used to ride them around the pits and stuff like that but they, they, they were that was in 1972 or 3 is this the pit, the pit bike starting kind of a yes, thing yes yeah, yeah. yeah yeah but that, that, I mean all the racers used to use Honda monkey bikes and stuff. Yeah. But then MV came out with a full-blown mini racer. And it's complete with fairing. And I do have a photograph of myself sitting on one. Or sitting on the one. And as I say, these were, there were only two in the world. And one of them was sold in an auction at Las Vegas about a year before we were asked to make the grid for this one. Uh, and it was sold for $10,000 or something like that. This one was going to... I went going to Japan and it was sold out of Holland and I got the phone call one day from this guy, obviously Dutch and uh, he was working for an English freight company and I said okay, from your accent, you're Dutch is this coming from, are we, are we sending this crate to Holland? He said no, no, to London uh, and I said why have you contacted me? There are other people make boxes. He said I've heard you make good boxes. <laughs> Don't know who told him. Yeah, but you know. Yeah, I have a lovely box of yours. Um, some of this. Um, I have a lovely box of yours still at home. The uh, the, the gunpowder box you made for me. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No gunpowder, obviously, in it. But um, yeah, it was lovely construction. Very complex. Well, the uh, board of trade and the uh, health and safety executive said that they were the best you could buy in the British Isles. So there we go. They took them here to demonstrate to all the gun dealers that. Uh, this is what you have to have if you're going to sell powder. And this is for people who awesome. do their own ammunition. Mm-hmm. Their own ammunition. Mm-hmm. Wrapping up. I was going to ask one question. You got one left? No, no I'm going to play and I have one. Oh. How many do you have? I have one. You've one? Yeah. Look at this. It's all worked out. I have flown a plane, but I haven't landed one. <laughs> Tell me. Efficiency. Actually, one of those <laughs> birthday present things out in Newton Arts where you get, uh, yeah. get an R in the plane. Ah, you're I wasn't, staring up high. What, yeah. what I wasn't <laughs> expecting was... We're still going like that, up out of Newton Arts, and a beautiful, beautiful day. Rick was in the in the back, and Rick and Johnny were in the back. Right. And I was in the front, obviously, with the skipper. And he just said, see, if you hold the wheel like that, and then you keep level with that wheel, you know, the, the horizon. Oh, artificial horizon, yeah. And uh, he said, right, you okay then? I said, what? He says, you're, you're flying. <laughs> and we're still pointing up like that. So, I mean, the whole hour, and then... Brought me back in, up out over the uh, peninsula and back in over Bangor, which is the normal flat, flight path down to Newton Arts. Mm. And he only took over when we were about 400 feet off the ground. Class. Yeah, the whole time. Yes, I've flown one, but never landed one. Very cool. Awesome. Well, my, my final question is, what do you want to instill in your grandkids? Mm. Decency. And um, I think appreciation if not love for fellow human beings that's all I've ever wanted to be was a human human being mm. you know yeah apart from a dentist but I screwed up my head <laughs> well thank goodness you could have had 47 years <laughs> in the dentist <laughs> chair in the mouth. Yeah, they no most it. dentists retire early because they, <laughs> they, can't, they can't stick it but they've got lots of money to retire on <laughs> my question is going to be it may take another hour for this one um is uh, so I know you had a, a rough experience in Sunday school with mm-hmm. organized religion, mm-hmm. but would you consider yourself at all spiritual? <sighs> sort of. I know what, what, it depends what you mean by spiritual. I believe that there's something inside us, be it a spirit, be it whatever, mm. something that niggles at us and guides us, perhaps doesn't. Mm. Tell us right or wrong, but it says you shouldn't really be doing that. Now, whether that comes from our conventional Western society and religion or not, I don't know. But, I mean, you look at the Ten Commandments, for example. Most of what's in the Ten Commandments apply to every other tribe, civilization, whatever that's ever existed. And they didn't know anything about JC in the big black book, you know. So mm-hmm. it, it, there, there is something inbuilt. JC in the big black book. It's an amazing book. album. Great name. band. <laughs> I, no, I literally was just like, oh my goodness, that is a class name for something. JC and uh, well, one the big thing, one, one thing, spiritual, <laughs> some spiritually, <clears throat> um, no music, music 
can this elevate, why ele ele elevate you to a certain level yeah. sometimes. Right. And if you ever want to have a spiritual tug on your music, oh, I mean, there are lots and lots of them. Obviously, there's a, all the old black guys that are singing gospel stuff that became blues or blues became them or whatever. Mm. Roy Buchanan, phenomenal guitar player. He does a track called um, The Messiah Will Come Again. Mm. It's, I'm shivering now thinking about it. It's just brilliant. The guitar playing is superb. Uh, but the first lines are just a smile, just a glance. Prince of Darkness just walked past. You know, and, the, and it just, it, it's, it's an amazing track. And, wow. uh, do yourselves a favour and listen to it. I will have to, yeah. I've written it down. Great. Yeah, that's but, why yes, but, but spiritual, yeah. spiritually, <clears throat> Yes and no. Um, do I believe that there are spirits or, or that there is some inner thing? I mean, I have in my life seen two ghosts and uh, I was there, I saw them. I don't care what anybody else says. But the funniest part uh, on the first one, uh, when I was working in forensic and I was starting to go out with Janet in Lisburn, I had a wee Honda 50 that I bought from Michael when he was working in downtown. He used to go to work on it. But I, I then went to work from Gilnherg over to forensic on it in Newton Breda on this bike and I rode it and I never bought petrol for it because I used to get the petrol bombs in and then filter the petrol filter the sugar out of it and uh, until some bugger made a petrol bomb out of two stroke and I was going across the car and <laughs> oil, oil smoke behind me and stuff and, um, so where was it going with? yes ghosts ghosts um, if you look at the annals of the sort of Belfast area history, there is a boy buried in Drumbeg Church Cemetery, just where the Lagan Canal and the river go under the, the bridge at Drumbeg. His head someone never stays up straight. Uh, he was wronged by his wife. I think the guy's name was Captain Haddock, possibly. Uh, there are lots of stories of when that, that used to be the main Dublin Road, and, and there are lots of stories where people say that Haddock would be in the back of their horse as they're trotting up that bit. Also, because it's in the dip and it's on the river, it's always colder. So when you're riding a motorbike down there, it's always cooler as you ride yeah, down there. Feels, yeah. But I'm going home from Janet's one night and I'm on the way up towards Upper Malone, uh, Malone Road. And I looked around and there's this big burly guy sitting behind me on the bike. That, no word of a lie, big burly guy right there in my mirror, right there behind me on my back. And I thought, holy shit. So I looked away a couple of hundred yards later, still there. Oh, God. Oh God. And, and <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about about the story because yeah, it only yeah, yeah. clicked for me who it was later on. Yeah. Then I stopped when I got into the streetlights at uh, the top of Malone Road and looked around and he was gone. So I hadn't sat and had a smoke and, <laughs> and, and stopped shaking. And uh, I wasn't on any sort of stimulant. Um, hadn't been drinking and then previous to that I had seen a ghost behind Gilmer Church on the little road called the Rocky Road which was up in the side oh, of the hill yeah. and <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a, no it's not that Rocky Road not the Castle Ray one this is, oh, this right. is just a lane right. uh, and it goes up behind the, the cemetery um, and I was up there with a young lady one time and we both saw it and it just there was like wind chimey type noise and there's this shimmering thing and Two people can't have the same hallucination. Mm. So, yes, I believe that there are spirits. There are other things about mm. the place. Um, but spiritual, no. Um, uh, God and I did a deal years ago. I don't bother him. He doesn't bother <laughs> me, you know. He stays out of my shit, I stay out of his. <laughs> That's so, no, and, and I don't think I'll ever change as I get older. I don't think I'll believe as I get older. I don't think I'm going to have any road to Damascus type thing. <gasps> you know, nah. The whole thing is just so illogical. Uh, the whole Christianity religious thing, and and what has been put me off majorly, mm. obviously, is like you got thousands of Christians around Northern Ireland. Very little God. It's true. Yeah. It's true. As far as I can see. <clears throat> Roscoe hit him. Hit him with the last question. He doesn't know what's coming. He's on the ropes. Get him. Get him. Two sec, there we go. All right, um, so if you can go back in a time machine and uh, meet an 18-year-old version of yourself, what would you say? Do 
you could afford to go a lot harder at it and you'd still be okay. <laughs> <laughs> in, what, in what way? Every way. Every way? Yes. Every single way? That's yes. good. I always had a healthy, unhealthy um, restraint. Mm-hmm. Maybe that was my spirituality keeping me back. But... Uh, you were cautious. I, 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 yeah, I probably was cautious. I just did some stupid thing. <laughs> uh, On a percentage, in, like uh, what... How much of a percentage of like a buffer or a restraint would you say was on you? You talking ten percent, twenty percent, thirty percent? Probably fifty or sixty. You know? Hi. Yeah. Insecure, unconfident, not sure yourself. Well, yeah, I've always been really believe it or not, I've always been very, very shy. Yeah. And I probably have overcompensated over the years for that shyness. Yeah. Uh, I. Yeah, I would afraid. I was afraid of my own shadow. I mean, since I've grown up, like. I, well, t- some people wouldn't believe that because, I mean, during the height of the troubles, it, there was a party on somewhere I'd walk halfway across the town and walk halfway home again, you know. But that, that it's just, um, I wasn't afraid that way, but mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. probably too cautious. Probably. Okay. But then if I hadn't been, maybe I wouldn't be here now. That was a great mm-hmm. uh, Carlsberg moment. <laughs> Probably. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate You're it. You're very welcome. I yeah, hope we said something that might be worth repeating. Thanks for doing this. And Roscoe, thanks for producing. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Hope to catch you again next time. Have a good rest of your day. Bye bye.